You're listening to Vernacular Podcast. Hello, welcome to Vernacular Podcast. I'm Sally. And I'm Zach. And this is episode eight. We will be talking to Joshua, who's an incoming medical student. But before we do that, we're going to give you our tip of the week. Hashtag tip of the week. This week's tip of the week relates to one of our favorite podcasts. And no, it is not our podcast, Vernacular Podcast, even though that's probably your favorite podcast. <laughs> or at least you're just kind to us. Or you're just our mom. <laughs> or you're... <laughs> if our moms That's are really... even listening to this <laughs> maybe not even <laughs> we don't know but we have another favorite podcast and it is from npr it's called intelligence squared debates but of course the same clause with this recommendation goes with previous recommendations that is that you shouldn't stop listening to vernacular if you're going to start listening to this new podcast no you should just add it to your repertoire of podcasts just become a podcast aficionado like sally is thank you you're welcome so this podcast, Zach actually turned me on to last summer, and it is a debate. It's Oxford-style debates on American shores. I think this is actually the only podcast it. I've ever told Sally about, and she started listening. <laughs> it's, it's always the other way around. She's always like, oh, I found this great new podcast. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, so yeah, Zach told me about this one, and they talk about everything. They get four people together, two people on each side. Yep. And they have one moderator. Yep. And they do, they engage with really controversial issues, which is what I like about them. They don't shy away from important stuff. So they've, they've had one on the death penalty. They've had one yep. on, uh, I think gay marriage is the most recent one. So they really, they don't, they don't try to stay politically correct. They really go for the really interesting ones that everyone wants to talk about. So yeah, they just present a question and then they have people who are for and against. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I'm just looking at my podcast app right now and they have, yeah, should the U S adopt the right to be forgotten? Are liberals stifling intellectual diversity? Should the world bet on America? Should we abolish the death penalty? Is smart technology making us dumb? It's really fascinating and very fast paced. I I learn something every time I listen to it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's not boring because they're just constantly going back and forth and interrupting each other and fighting and And they're pretty good at selecting good people to represent each Mm -hmm. side. So every every once in a while you'll wonder how did this person get selected to represent, but normally they're, they're very well spoken on both sides and make good cases and they actually have an audience at each of these debates so it's recorded live and so the audience actually participates at one point right yeah very cool so that's your tip of the week check out intelligence squared oxford style debates on u.s shores from npr and now we'll talk they to didn't Joshua. pay us to say oh. that just so you know <laughs> that's true we're not sponsored by them unfortunately <laughs> next time maybe for episode nine <laughs> all right next up joshua All right, welcome to Vernacular Podcast. We're sitting here with Joshua, and we are going to talk to him about a bunch of different topics that we are very excited about. But before we do that, Joshua, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. It's fantastic to be here. Thank you for having me. Definitely. Before we get started, we're hoping that you can introduce yourself to our listeners, talk a little bit about where you've been, what you're up to now, and where you hope to be, I don't know, five, ten years from now. Sure, happy to. I was... uh, born and raised uh, here in Virginia, actually all over Virginia. Uh, I've lived in several different uh, cities here. Um, But over the last four years, I've actually lived in eight cities. A combination of that was studying abroad during college, 
when I lived in Oxford, England, and then the capital of Morocco in Rabat. Uh, but more recently, um, I've lived, worked, and studied in Philly, D.C., and Colorado Springs. And goodness, five to ten years from now, um, very possibly be uh, finishing up um, a GMO tour, a general medical officer tour with the Navy, hopefully having finished uh, medical school. And I'm glad you on. clarified that acronym because I thought, <laughs> I thought you were talking about genetically modified organisms. We can go there later, uh, but right, absolutely. Cool. So finishing a tour with the Navy. So you're going to school on the Navy's dime, I presume? Yeah. So the plan is uh, this fall uh, to start at uh, Georgetown School of Medicine, moving back to D.C., another city that I fell in love with while I was working there on Capitol Hill, uh, be there for four years. Uh, the Navy has offered to pay for it through a program called the Health Profession Scholarship Program, um, which pays for students to do that. And then we get the chance to serve our country um, by working with uh, uh, veterans and the families of uh, military folks and occasionally even deploying uh, with a Marine or Navy unit. That's fantastic. So you're starting med school this fall, you said? Yes, sir. Great. Well, that's a perfect segue to what we want to talk about first because uh, some interesting stuff's happening in the world of genome editing, which you have probably heard about. Uh, but to prep you for your inaugural semester of med school, we thought we could chat about that a little bit. <laughs> okay. So uh, this caught our eye several months ago, actually, uh, or I should say caught our ear, because I think I first heard about it on NPR. I've said before that Sally and I are big NPR junkies, so we always have the radio on in the car. But at, uh, at Sun Yat-sen University in Guangzhou, China, a bunch of researchers announced in, I think it was April? Let me check the date. Yeah, I think it was April too. Yeah, they announced in April that they had uh, successfully performed uh, a series of experiments involving 86 different embryos in which they used a technique called CRISPR-Cas9 to modify the DNA of those embryos. They were trying to see if they could um, eliminate the genetic propensity for the sometimes fatal disorder of the blood called beta thalassemia. Um, and so they announced this, but perhaps surprisingly, perhaps not, they were met with, um, almost universal condemnation in the scientific community for a number of reasons. But the predominant reason was that this technique has not been proven to be safe yet. So even though the technique is apparently used to do genetic modifications in other organisms, it's never been used in embryos before, on embryos before. Human embryos. Human embryos, yeah. Um, and so this was the first time that was happening, but really there's no guarantee that it would be safe for the embryos or that there or wouldn't even be... effective. Right, or even effective. Um, but we want to talk about that um, for a few reasons. One, um, there's some interesting discussions coming out of this involving government regulation of science and medicine. Uh, but two, we also wanted to talk about the ethics of um, genetic... Um, editing genetic editing yeah genetic modification and so we thought we could chat about that a little bit sounds great so i guess we'll just start off with a question here what is what's what was your initial reaction when you heard the news if this was not the first time that you heard about this joshua yeah i actually had a friend in colorado springs also post that npr podcast online and start a facebook discussion Oh, those are uh, always, they always go well, Facebook discussions. They sure do. <laughs> um, 
I, uh, yep, just basically my main contribution to that in that forum uh, was posting a great video um, that MIT has put together. The McGovern Institute uh, put together a three-minute animated video describing what the CRISPR-Cas9 technique is and how it affects the DNA. And it really uh, captured my attention. Uh, First, as someone who worked with this in the past, uh, it's kind of exciting um, because I worked in different labs for three years while I was at Emory, uh, where the CDC is. And we use traditional techniques like Western blotting and several other ones to measure uh, DNA output or what you would call messenger RNA uptake, uh, which is basically indicating how active a cell is at creating a certain kind of protein. Um, So to get to a point where uh, we actually have a legitimate chance at treating diseases like beta thalassemia before a child is even born is really exciting. Um, But there are obviously a lot of questions that go with it. So let's just back up for one minute and talk about what the procedure actually entails because Obviously, CRISPR, I mean, we all know, stands for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats. Clearly. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But I have no idea what any of that actually means. So could you just maybe, in layman's terms, break down what the CRISPR-Cas9 process does and how it's different from other attempts to do genetic modification? Yeah, sure. I'll go off that second part of your question. This is the first time um, that scientists generally agree um, that we actually have the potential as a scientific community to modify um, not only uh, human DNA uh, before a child is born um, in embryos, but also specifically editing the germline. And that's a very key difference. Um, And basically what that would mean is that any DNA changes made would actually affect every future generation and not just what that person is experiencing because we have all kinds of gene therapy already available. You can use viral vectors um, and different techniques to edit and cut genes and get rid of bad DNA, replace it with a better functioning gene. Um, But this time, uh, and there's a fantastic paper published in Nature by the two scientists leading this effort, begging the rest of the world to not use this technique. Oh, oh wow. wow. That's so interesting. Exactly. After so, they had were they Were they asking the world not to use the t- technique yet or saying this is just never suitable for, for use on humans? So um, just saying at this point, um, with the research that we have done um, both in vitro and in vivo, which means in the lab and in some living organisms like mice, um, we don't think uh, it is yet suitable uh, for humans, um, and it could lead to um, you know, major problems that we don't know about, either now or in the next few years or in future generations because we don't even know what we're doing. Yeah, I think that's a good distinction that you point out, Joshua, between the therapy or modification of a single human being I guess, is is that somatic therapy, somatic gene therapy versus the germline modification that could affect all future generations? Because I think there's a different kind of a different ethical set of questions for each of those. Absolutely. So what what are the differences in the ethical questions between somatic gene therapy and germline gene therapy? Well, I think for somatic gene therapy, 
the questions are, was, you know, did you get consent from the individual and will it harm that particular individual? Um, and it, it's a lot of it is kind of left up to their autonomy and choice, which an embryo doesn't have that. So that's kind of a concern. But if it's germline therapy, then concerns would be about these future generations that don't even exist yet. And we're making changes that could affect their well-being for better or for worse. And they have no opportunity at all to consent. And we don't know what kinds of effects our modifications could have on them. Sally is absolutely right. And this actually takes me way back um, because the first two classes that I took in college about seven years ago uh, were freshman seminars called Brain Enhancement and another one called Bioethics in the Genomic Era. And we discussed the advent of things like designer babies and being able to use artificial limbs that are synced up to a neural interface uh, so that you can use your brain signals uh, to tell your arm what to do, even if it's like a robot mechanized arm. Uh, So we asked those same questions about, you know, who would be able to afford this technique and would it just be another instance of the rich getting richer or would it then turn into only healthy people get healthier? Um, But you're right. There is that extra layer of questions about affecting future generations and the butterfly effect. uh, I don't know if it was a particularly good movie with Ashton Kutcher. I never actually (laughs) saw it. Um, But just that it's a scary thought when you think about uh, several generations from now, you could be changing what happens in their lives. Yeah. There was a post in um, on the Huffington Post blog just today, actually, about this genome editing, and the author was making the argument that uh, while governments are going to want to get involved in this and start banning and regulating the the procedure of CRISPR, we should just let scientists regulate themselves because more often than not, they do a better job of regulating themselves um, than do government officials and candidates who don't really know all that's involved in the science. And so so governments should just kind of stay out of it and let scientists regulate themselves. And there might be those few scientists who are more rebellious or they want to kind of strike out on their own and push the limits, but but more often than not, we can kind of trust them to regulate themselves. Um, what do you What do you guys think of that? Yeah, I mean, I see that as essentially a straw man argument. I, Joshua, I know you have um, strong feelings about government regulation of of medical practice, so I definitely want to hear your <laughs> thoughts on this as well. But but it strikes me uh, just on its face as a straw man argument, setting up um, government as the straw man and basically saying that you know if we have government regulation in this at all, we're inevitably going to see scientific progress hindered. Um, I think the argument, the author has a legitimate concern about scientific or government regulation impeding scientific progress. And that certainly happened in the past, but I think that's an argument for careful government regulation, not an argument for the abrogation of all regulation entirely. So that's, that'd be my first response to that. The other one is just, um, kind of a counterpoint. And that is that we saw this, um, this development of, or the, this application of the CRISPR technique in China, uh, at uh, Sun Yat-sen University in Guangzhou. And I just, I think it's no coincidence that this happened in one of the most permissive countries in the world in terms of human rights law. Um, human rights violations. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, these these scientists were able to get away with it because there isn't regulation there. So, uh, you know, the argument 
that the author's making is, yeah, we should be self-policing and we should just be mindful of these things ourselves. We don't need government regulation. But you know, apparently we do because when there isn't government regulation, uh, stopping, you know, creating a red line essentially, then this is what happens. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, and I mean, the the author in this article brought up um, human cloning and Dolly and the backlash that those scientists received in early 2000 with regard to um, stem cells and all of that. But I think you're right. It's it's that just because we may or may not have have overregulated in the past doesn't mean that all regulation is bad for now, now and forever. <laughs> what do you think, Joshua? Yeah, that's, those were all good points. And, um, I actually, um, part of my unique perspective, uh, coming from it is that I started working at a DC think tank on Capitol Hill, actually the week after Obamacare went live in January, 2014. So I got to watch the unfolding of what some would call, a regulatory nightmare, uh, sometimes even logging into the website um, for you to discover what kind of nightmare the process of signing up for it was, um, was a little crazy. Um, so ever since then, I've had a, an interesting, maybe skewed and biased perspective of what uh, government regulation can do to an otherwise great industry, um, both science and medicine, um, so many people recognize that they have fallen far behind um, partner industries in technology and others that are less regulated uh, by the government. Um, Silicon Valley, you know, has their own um, views on that. And there's a reason there are a lot of libertarians out there um, who like it when the government uh, keeps their hands off. But back to the point about, um, you know, trusting humans to uh, regulate themselves, I think there's a lot to be said for um, both in this case, when two scientists who invented something very unique uh, looked into the abyss or the possibilities of what they had created and said, we should stop here, and then called on all their colleagues to do the same. And most people around the world, um, you know, have fallen into step with that. It was published in Nature magazine, which is the holy grail of publications um, for most uh, PhDs and postdocs uh, getting published in there puts you on the fast track to, um, you know, a tenure track faculty position um, and is a great leg up. But this has actually happened before. It happened back in 1975. Um with uh, a group working on recombinant DNA. Uh, the guy who won the Nobel Prize for Physiology and Medicine that year, um, his name is Dr. Baltimore. He's also on this committee um, that wrote the paper for, uh, for Nature on the CRISPR technique. But, but back then, he had just won this prize um, for discovering reverse transcriptase. And for the first time, we could actually traverse backwards up a DNA strand um, and, you know, create, um, create strands that uh, ran parallel to it, uh, or at, at least we discovered the natural process of how it works, and since then we've developed all these things. But they wrote a very similar paper back then, asking the world not to um, go too far with this technique, implementing it in humans until they had figured out 
um, a way to control it better. Um, and now it's a standard practice in a lot of HIV and AIDS treatments. Um, since that is a retrovirus um, that we're still trying to understand um, how best to treat, um, it's a great little case study in humans regulating themselves, even though they acknowledge in both of these papers that somewhere around the world uh, someone is not going to uh, heed the advice, especially considering uh, that there, there's a lot of money to be had in any of these. Um, greed is a powerful motivator. Um, power, fame, um, all of these are eventually going to get uh, to someone. Yeah, I think that's, that is very admirable. Um, but I guess to bring us back to an earlier point about looking at the safety versus other ethical aspects of a procedure, I wonder if that's enough to stop scientists from moving forward because usually the concern motivating, I, I assume, the, the scientists in both of these the cases that you mentioned is that it's not safe yet. And so, but what if it becomes safe? Then do we need some sort of regulation to say, we cannot, we cannot pass this point anyway because we're changing what it means to be human. Not that we're hurting humans, but we're changing what it means to be humans. And so that's a line that we shouldn't cross. And is that a line that scientists are, go are going to be willing to draw? When I saw, when I read some of the initial reactions to what the Chinese scientists had done, I was surprised that most of the reactions seemed to center around the question of whether or not this procedure was safe. Uh, and I think. I think that objection is troubling from a philosophical perspective because if we can imagine at some point in the future this is probably going to be the case, we can get to a point where this procedure is deemed totally safe, is it then ethically acceptable to, to conduct, right? And I think what you guys have identified with the germline issue is, well, it's not just about safety. It's not just about unintended consequences to the embryo. It's actually about robbing future persons of their, of their choice, of their autonomy, by conducting this germline therapy before they even have a chance to be conceived and born. And putting ourselves in a position of making decisions on their behalf about what is a good DNA or, you know, what's a good set of genes and what's a bad set of genes. That's a good point. And it reminds me actually of one of my favorite uh, public speakers. I uh, started following Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, towards the end of high school and reading everything I could find by him and listening to his speeches. He gave a relatively little-known sermon at one point called The Acceptable Year of Our Lord, and he follows that format he uses in a lot of speeches, um, like, I have a dream this, I have a dream that. And in this speech, he says, The Acceptable Year of Our Lord is when we can keep our theology abreast of our technology. And I think that's an interesting commentary on our modern world, you know, 50 years later, that generally our ethics and our theology lag far behind um, a lot of technological capability we have because we don't have nearly as many people thinking about the implications of it as about what can we do with it right now. And I'm a big fan of... Uh, science, what we can do with it. It's part of why I'm dedicating my life to it. Um, but it should definitely always be used to um, clarify the end um, and help uh, humans as that end and never treat them as a means to an end. Yeah. And I think uh, actually this is maybe slightly tangential, but one thing that's, that's always struck me is that it's actually theology that's driven much of science for 
the, the vast majority of human history. Um, and I say that because, you know, you look at the, like the, the monks in Western Europe who were doing a lot of the scientific advancements, people like Gregor Mendel, the father of modern genetics, he was a monk. <laughs> and so these guys were actually inspired to learn more about the creation that they believed God had made. And that's why they went about doing it. And I think modern, Definitely. I think that's, that's antithetical to modern science, um, or at least many modern scientists, um, who actually think that theology, uh, and a belief in God at all has been a detriment to the advancement of science. But I think that belief flies in the face of what, what has actually happened throughout most of history. finally done with the class that I was teaching this past year and I have some free time now to read new books. So I've been putting together a little book list of what reading I want to accomplish over the summer. I don't know what it is about summer that makes me start creating a book list, but I have one. And as soon as I finish the book that I'm reading right now, I'm planning to hopefully get through three other books this summer, which for some people, they're probably like three books. That's not a lot, but I don't have a ton of time, so I'm going to start with three and see how far I get. Um, but the three books that I have on my list are uh, Adam and Eve After the Pill, um, The Paradoxes of the Sexual Revolution by Mary Eberstadt. And this is a book that was written, I think, several years ago now. It's, it's not that new, but it's just been on my list for a long time. It was written in 2012, so it's not super new, but it's not super old, and it's one that I've wanted to read for a while. Um, Mary Eberstadt is a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, and then another book. Is, well, that one seems really interesting to me too. I was I was going to have that one on my reading list, but Sally mentioned it was going to be on hers, so <laughs> I, picked, I picked another one to talk about. It can still be on your list too, but yeah, but that topic is really interesting to me because. I think uh, in modern society today, so many of us take the existence and the ubiquity of contraception for granted, but it wasn't that way for most of human history. Um, and even before, I forget what the year was, 1930, I think, Lambeth Conference, um, virtually all Christian denominations were united in thinking that contraception was not a good thing. And so really it was after 1930, if that's the, if that's the correct year, it's, it's around there, um, that contraception, the use of contraception took off in America and there's a correlation, not necessarily causation. I'm not making an argument of causality, but there's a correlation between what happened there and, you know, declining, uh, marriage rates, uh, ascending divorce rates, et cetera, uh, increased abortion rates, all of these things. So, I'm very interested to dig into this book and see what Eberstadt's argument is and how well it holds up. Yeah, definitely. So that's on my list. And then um, this is an, an old book, Shepherding a Child's Heart by Ted Tripp. Um, and it's just a book about parenting your children. <laughs> and I need all the help I can get for parenting our child. <laughs> so I'm going to read that. And then the third book is called Delancey. And it's written by Molly Weisenberg, who... Um, she is actually co-host of a really cool podcast called Spilled Milk. But you can only listen to it if you're not going to stop listening to our podcast. <laughs> right, right. As long as it won't affect your listening to vernacular. But Molly Weisenberg, um, she she has this awesome blog called Orangette, which I think that's how you pronounce it. But anyways, she opened a restaurant with her husband um, in Seattle. It's, a, it's kind of a Brooklyn-style pizza restaurant. And Delancey is 
is the story of them starting this restaurant. The The subtitle is A Man, a Woman, a Restaurant, and a Marriage. So that's that's kind of my fun book that I want to read this summer. So what about you guys? What's on your reading list for this summer? You can take it away, Joshua. All right. I have a very weird uh, reading style. I cannot read one book at once. So I am in the midst of several. Um, so I guess they are on my list. I might still be reading them months from now. <laughs> um, but uh, at the top of the list is David Brooks' Road to Character. Um, I have read every single other book he's written. Um, I read the op-eds he writes every Tuesday and Friday morning uh, for the New York Times. I love his writing style, uh, how succinct he is, and also um, how on point he is with a lot of things uh in, in regards to describing our culture. Um, the I, I assume, we, you, as a David Brooks fan, I assume you've read The Social Animal. Absolutely. Uh, I, I love this, that book. Yeah. Sal, Sal and I both read that probably a year and a half ago or so. Yeah, we were kind of late to the reading of it game, but both <laughs> we really were, liked it. It was a fun game, but we were late. <laughs> <laughs> oh, absolutely. Um, and it, it differed from his first two books in that it wasn't as much a cultural commentary of citing statistics and whatnot um but it started to use the storytelling technique and he does that in this new book road to character where he tells uh the story of um ike and ida eisenhower and uh dorothy day and several other um amazing uh you know examples we have of human history and people who took the hard road to character and he uses them to form a narrative about what he calls a moral bucket list and how we all have bucket lists in our lives, um, things we'd like to do uh, before kicking the bucket. Uh, Maybe climbing Mount Everest is on it or um, going back to school one day. But how many of us actually have a to-be list instead of a to-do list? Um, So I've read the, um, you can call me a cheater, that's fine, but I've read the first and the last chapter of the book <laughs> and how I need to go back and read everything in between. Um, and it really is a small world uh, because the last guest you had on the Vernacular podcast, I understand, was a significant uh, contributor um, to the book as a research assistant for David Brooks because I saw her name listed in the acknowledgments. Yeah, I know. You're totally right. That was the last project she worked on before she moved on to a new job fantastic stuff um did you want to do another book zach or should i go with another uh yeah i'll I'll, I'll bail you out here i'll do one so um one of mine is from another new york times columnist and i'm a little late to this party as well because this book has been out for some time but sally has read this so actually that leads to one of the advantages of reading this book after sally has sally went through this uh two summers ago and already heavily annotated the book. So really, I just have to heavily skim and I see all the underlying important parts. <laughs> For once in our marriage, I read a book before Zach did. So I'm very <laughs> proud of this fact. <laughs> but this one is by Ross Douthit, who is a, uh, as I mentioned, a columnist of the New York Times. And it is called Bad Religion, How We Became a Nation of Heretics. I don't know if you've read this one, Joshua. I have not. Um, but It's really good. Yeah. So Sally would be a better one to talk through the summary, but I'll, I'll give it a, a shot here. So uh, Douthit basically traces the development of Christianity in America and focuses, I think, on the 20th century, And although he, he goes back further than that. But um, it seems like at least the meat of his thesis is in the 20th century, and he traces how America's cultural trends have really shaped America's theological trends as well. 
Yeah, the first half of the book is more historical, and then the second half um, is where he identifies these, what he calls heresies. As a Christian myself, I'm very interested to see what doubt that says about American Christianity and how it has changed since the founding. For the worse, apparently. For the worse, yeah, how we became a nation of heretics. So. Yeah. <laughs> Back to you, Joshua. Yeah, bold language. That's great. Yeah. Um, I guess I can talk about my next two together, uh, since they go um, well together. Have either of you seen uh, Jurassic World yet since it came out? No, we really want to. We need to to find a babysitter. (laughs) Everyone we know who's seen it has so far loved it. Have you seen it? I did go to see it um, with my little sister this past weekend. And the author um, of that original book, which was adapted into a film, is Michael Crichton. The last book he wrote before he died was called Next. Um, fantastic um, book that I'm also only about a third of the way through. Um, he's a great writer in general because he comes from a unique perspective. He uh, went through undergraduate uh, college like many of us do, um, then went to Harvard Med School like very few of us do, and got all the way through. Um, and then decided not to actually get his license. So even though he has an MD, um, he was disillusioned with medicine by that point. He published an amazing novel called The Andromeda Strain. His writing career took off, and uh, he wrote all the way And he never had to work again. (laughs) Pretty much. Uh, He he actually wrote a lot of books. Um, If you look at his Amazon page, um, his average book probably has 400 reviews, which wow. most, most authors would kill to have uh, that much attention. Um, and Jurassic Park has something insane, like 1,400. But uh, so this book next is actually about uh, what we were discussing earlier. Basically, um, what is going to happen uh, in a future world where um, chimpanzees can talk and humans can be cured of things like drug addiction, and we can take a vaccine uh, to treat behavioral disorders and not just medical disorders. So is it a, um, dy- is it an, it's a novel? Is it like a dystopian novel? Yes, um, kind of, but it's not that scary. <laughs> it's um, He actually it describes, thinks it'd be great. <laughs> it is wonderful. Right, it, it's a utopia. Well, it describes in terms we're very familiar with, and um, it actually is kind of a work of historical fiction. Hmm. It incorporates several um, things that have already happened in history and just kind of dramatizes them and uses different names. Um, It it opens with a courtroom scene of someone uh, basically suing UCLA for the rights to their own tissue um, because they had gone to a doctor, been treated for a disease, been cured, but apparently he had been cured um, of a specific T-cell leukemia by his own DNA, which produced an enzyme he needed. UCLA then, without telling him, um, took his tissue, um, marketed it, sold it for $3 billion, turned it into a great commercial product, and uh, all that without telling him. When he heard about it, he tried to sue and get some of the money, and the Board of Regents of UCLA decided... He did not have the rights to his own Holy body. cow, that's Yeah, amazing. that's a famous case. I think I read that in Property. That sounds really familiar. Yeah, so this is more v. Regents of UCLA. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
it's an actual case, but you read it and it makes sense as science fiction until you're like, holy cow, this <laughs> actually happened. And it started way back in 1980 when the Supreme Court, you know, had a 5-4 decision in a case called Diamond v. Shaq Rabberty um, that you could actually patent genetically modified organisms, in this case, a mouse. Um, and then ever since then, it's just gotten crazier and crazier. Wow, that's amazing. Well, that sounds like a really good book. I think I might have to pick that up yeah. <laughs> after that description. Absolutely. And the one that goes with it um, is a brand new book this year uh, called The Patient Will See You Now by hmm. Dr. Eric Topol. Oh, I haven't um, heard of that. And it basically describes how medicine has flipped itself on its head. It's no longer a completely um, paternalistic or authoritative uh, profession in the sense that uh, we as patients have no idea what we're doing. We show up at the office of an all-wise and all-knowing doctor who uh, both figures out what's wrong with us and how to take care of us. We follow his orders to a T, and then everything gets better. It's actually starting to go the reverse direction, where we all look ourselves up on, uh, what is it, WebMD, um, and find out we have cancer, and then <laughs> go to the doctor and find out hopefully we don't yeah that's generally my my uh first approach is webmd <laughs> so i'm guilty both of these are very you know forward-thinking books um but probably also not too far away because they're describing part of our reality yeah definitely i really want to read that last one that you mentioned well i don't know if mine is quite that interesting <laughs> but i really like dystopian novels which is why next sounded so interesting to me um and i also sometimes like apocalyptic novels. And I've heard this one recommended uh, several times to me. This is Father Elijah by Michael D. O'Brien. And this is a story of an apocalypse. Um, and it caught my eye be because an author I, I like, a guy named Sheldon Vanaken, who wrote A Severe Mercy. Um, he recommended this as one of the great books that he's ever read. Um, he says it's a thriller, but also something far deeper. Um, and then another... Um, Another favorite author of mine calls this an enthralling book that deserves the very exalted tribute of being reminiscent of Tolstoy and Charles Williams. Um, wow. So really high praise for this one. Nice. I will, uh, after I read it, I'll give our listeners an update to see um, if it if it lived up to the high praise. But I'm looking forward to that. And look at you reading fiction. I know. Yeah, that's the other thing. I never read fiction. <laughs> so when I heard this really high praise for a fiction book, I was like, this is good. And it's, it's dystopian slash apocalyptic, which is really the only kind of fiction I do enjoy when I do read friction, fiction. So, My friends make fun of me for that, too. I hadn't read a fiction book in years until finally reading one by C.S. Lewis. Oh, nice. Yeah, which one I was that? I think it's Till We Have Faces. Oh, oh yeah. A, good a one. Myth Retold. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, I mean, I'm just like you. I don't read that much fiction. I, <laughs> it's bad of me. I, I, I know it's not a good reason, but... I think sometimes I just feel like I'm wasting my time if I'm not reading facts, you know? Um, and again, I'm, I know that's a terrible argument because fiction is really important, but I think just subconsciously that's what's always going through my head. So I have to be reading facts, <laughs> which brings me to my third book, which is a biography. I like biographies a lot. So I've yet to read David McCullough's Pulitzer. I think it was a Pulitzer Prize winning book, um, his biography of Truman, Harry Truman. So I like biographies, especially presidential biographies. And McCullough is one of the greats. He uh, wrote the John Adams biography, which is, I think, kind of the gold standard of presidential biography. So I'm looking forward to cracking that one open as well, all like 800 pages of it. Yeah, well, these are great lists, you guys. So I'll 
make sure to link to all of these books that we mentioned in our at our blog so that people can read them if they would like. All right, Joshua, so talk to us a little bit about why you chose medicine. I actually, when I was probably 14, uh, halfway through high school, um, I was about to start attending a magnet school that specialized in math, science, and technology, and we had a mandatory science fair uh, for our curriculum. So I spent a summer in the Virginia Tech Library, basically, uh, just trying to decide what I wanted to do. And basically, uh, got to a point of getting addicted to everything I could find on the ethics of genetics. Um, but basically, I um, got super excited by that. Um, wound up doing kind of a fun project that year. But then the next year, um, an IRB board actually gave permission for a 15-year-old me to handle rats and actually give them a drug that is used to treat restless leg syndrome and Parkinson's. But I wound up winning second place in the state science fair, demonstrating that uh, this drug has um, an effect on rats uh, very similar to what it does in humans. Besides treating dopamine symptoms, it also affects the system. So these rats went haywire. Um, I would give them the drug. They would try to bite me, the group that was getting the highest dose, and the um, group that was getting the lowest dose even had um, significant changes um, in what you would call their neuromuscular makeup. Uh, so they got super tense all the time and rigid. And I was basically duplicating the same results that were published in a USA Today article. Um, it worked out really well. I wound up deciding to study neuroscience in college. Like I've described, I uh, worked in several research labs, was pre-med, did the whole uh, track uh, that you do, and never looked back. Cool. Um, so follow-on question then. Uh, we talked about where, you're, where you will be five years from now, um, but where do you think you'll be 20 years from now? Ooh, great question. 20 years from now, working in some form of medical technology entrepreneurship, uh, so some kind of business venture um, or venture capitalism, um, where you can actually uh, target specific companies, uh, the best and brightest startups, um, and aid them in their process by providing both advice and finances um, to further grow any kind of um, market for this technology. Um, so again, going back to what we've discussed earlier, um, but one of the biggest complaints uh, that people developing techniques like CRISPR and the zinc fingers is that they don't have enough funding um, to study what they need to fast enough. Um, and if that could be sped up, then... I think that would be a very worthy uh, pursuit. I always, I always have thought though that being a venture capitalist would be just such a great job because it's always exciting for me to read about these spart these startups doing really interesting work, and it would be really cool to be the guy who's giving them the money to do this, so that you can pick and choose which ones you think are the most promising and just shell out the money. 
Yeah, it's like you have all these children that you're just you're helping them. Yes, <laughs> go yes. On something like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but speaking of startups, um, there's a really interesting startup that I know you know about, Joshua, um, and they're creating Soylent. This uh, I don't even know how to describe it. This like food substitute where you don't have to eat regular food anymore. Instead, you can just drink these shakes of Soylent and. Um, I know that you are trying this out. So tell us about that. So Soylent, um, yeah, founded by Rob Reinhardt uh, a few years ago. They went through the very popular uh, startup accelerator program called Y Combinator a few years ago. Oh, and I know all about Y Combinator. Thanks to <laughs> <laughs> thanks, thanks to, to Sally's Gimlet favorite podcast. Media. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Startup Alex Bloomberg. Anyways. Another awesome. plug for that podcast. So go ahead, continue. Yeah, and they now um, specialize in creating, as you described, a f- food substitute, or as some people would say, a complete nutritional replacement. Basically, um, some people are now calling it the $100 million milkshake, both because of what the company is worth and because you kind of drink it like a milkshake. I would actually describe it as sweet oatmeal um, <laughs> i was gonna say does it taste like a milkshake because it doesn't, so, uh, it doesn't right. <laughs> I, drinking drink. sweet oatmeal sounds terrible to me so <laughs> I don't, am i missing something here i don't know so four tall glasses a day of this powder that you just have to add water i occasionally add things like milk and uh chocolate whey protein powder to make it Uh, taste a little better, uh, even though it's not terrible by itself. Personally, for me, I started about two or three weeks ago, and I'm not uh, using it as a complete nutritional replacement. I use about a thousand calories a day uh, of it, and I've been weaning myself onto it, but I think it actually tastes great, and it definitely does save time and money, so it will probably continue through those med school late night study hours. Cool. And what, what are your thoughts so far? Prelim, pre, preliminary results. I do enjoy it. Um, when I drink one glass, I actually have to be careful not to drink it too fast because it is very heavy on the stomach. It actually is filling. Um, I'm staring at a package right now, and it lists out all the nutrition facts. Um, basically, in each serving, so in each of those glasses that you mix into water, there are your 500 calories, you know, one fourth of your 2000 calories a day, 24 grams of fat, 51 carbohydrates, including only 11 grams of sugar, but also 21 grams of protein. And on the back, it lists all of the different vitamins um, and all of them come out to about 25%. Well, let's, let's chat about the ethics of this for just a minute. So. I'm just going to go on a, on a brief monologue here, if you'll permit. So <laughs> I've, thought, I've thought a fair amount about food ethics, but the ethics of food, I should say. And I think there are like basically kind of three frameworks for thinking about the ethics of food consumption. The first has to do with the economics of the food market. So that is to say, when we buy food, we, had, we should think about the sourcing of the food, right? Which is why there's such a fair trade movement. We want to make sure that the food that we're buying is not basically artificially discounted because it because the manufacturer can take advantage of cheap labor elsewhere. Um, 
So that's the first way we should think about this. So for example, another, well, another, another reason for this is not just about the labor, but also are we, are we putting at a disadvantage the people who are in the regions where the food is produced? So for example, the uh, use of quinoa in America has dramatically reduced the supply of quinoa in South America because manufacturers can fetch a much higher market rate for quinoa in America than they can in South America. So indigenous populations are actually starving in South America because the quinoa is not there anymore and it's all been outsourced to America. Interesting. So that's one way we should think about the ethics of food consumption, I think, is the market behind it and how consumer behavior influences the market. The second way is actually, um, and maybe this is related to Soylent too, um, but maybe this would actually say something good for Soylent and Soylent's favor is that we should just take care of our bodies, right? So I think that we can make a pretty good argument that it's actually an unethical thing to go to McDonald's three meals a day, seven days a week, because you're filling your body with food that's clearly not healthy for it, and you're not taking care of yourself like you should. So that's the second way I think we can think about it. And the third is, an, is I think, an ethical argument, but maybe less apparently so, um, more apparently perhaps an aesthetic argument, and that is that food is something that should be beautiful, uh, but it's also something that should be fellowshipped over, you know, that we should spend time together eating food, which is really what humans have done for all of recorded human history. And so then with that framework, I think a potential issue with Soylent comes up because Soylent is clearly not designed to be enjoyed in fellowship with other people. It's designed for people on the go who don't have time uh, to, you know, make themselves a actual cooked meal always on the go at the office they can squeeze a few more minutes of productivity out of their day if they can just whisk up this quarter of a pouch into a glass of water and be be done with it so that's you know i'll, I'll conclude my monologue there and end my thoughts on food ethics but uh i guess i'm just eager to hear your response to that joshua yeah that's fantastic actually and i'm as with any field of ethics as i'd mentioned before i'm glad there are smart people thinking about it um, at times when I don't have time to. But yeah, you putting it in those three points is actually uh, really helpful. I, I haven't watched uh, most foodie documentaries, anything like Food Inc. Um, or the other great ones out there. Food Inc. is terrifying. Seen... It's so scary. <laughs> but I have seen Super Size Me, and that yeah. one was very scary to me. Mm -hmm. um, the fact that Morgan Spurlock or anyone um, would only eat McDonald's or a fast food place uh, for that long just to see what would happen to their body is kind of insane. And it makes you think twice the next time you want to go back to a fast food chain like that. So I, I think what's great about Soylent in terms of this is that it, everything is already measured out for you. Um, right. You don't have to guess. You don't have to keep careful track. You don't have to show up at each restaurant and ask for a menu with nutrition facts and be that customer um i mean i have i went through you know a time where i watched a younger sister develop uh food allergies so we would go to lots of restaurants and ask specifically what products does this have in it does it have soy does it have tree nuts does it have all these different things and so many waiters and waitresses just don't know or don't have time uh to explain or even in grocery stores it can be hard to find that information that it's nice that part of that is already taken care of for you with Soylent. Yeah, that is nice. And I think, I mean, also they've, all the signs from what I gather about Soylent point to it being a healthy product, something that has 
all the essential amino acids and proteins and sugars that you need. So that's why I mentioned that, that, that in that framework, it could actually be a point in Soylent's favor. That this is actually you taking good care of your body because you're giving your body exactly the nutrition that it needs. I think the biggest point where Soylent might be lacking is absolutely your third point on the aesthetics or the community aspect of food um, and how we've experienced it as humans uh, for a long time. Um, basically, this idea that, um, yeah, so food and communion is actually a huge topic at the uh, church I attended in Colorado Springs. Um, because the weekly act of actually uh, taking communion, um, whether you actually eat bread and wine or you have a cracker and grape juice, um, it's the idea of being served, uh, which reminds us that during the week we're supposed to um, serve each other uh, around our own tables. So what that looks like in the nuclear family, what that looks like uh, with your friend group um, and getting together for... Um, you know, a meal that either you cook or you go to a restaurant for, um, you know, follow it by a few beers and call it an evening. And you've turned that into um, an experience where you're um, eating food together. Some people call it breaking bread together. And um, I, I think you're right that that's a huge aspect that we should not lose um, about food. And that's why I would be very hesitant to completely replace uh, my diet with Soylent because of that temptation to make it a totally individualistic or atomistic activity. Yeah, that's really, that makes sense. And, um, I think that's admirable that you see that even as you're, you're trying it out. Yeah. This conversation makes me think of a book by Leon Cass about this topic. Um, it's, it's called something like the hungry soul. Um, yeah, eating and perfecting our nature. And he wrote it several years ago, but he makes this argument that the thing that distinguishes uh, humans from animals is that we don't just feed to to get all the calories we need and to nourish our bodies. We we actually feast. And so food, in in the best way, is supposed to, to be an avenue for community and um, relationship and and understanding the good, the true and the beautiful basically. Um, so, so I think that, I think that that is an essential part of, of eating and, and actually makes us different from every other animal. Unfortunately, we are just about out of time for this episode, so we'll have to call it here, but this has been a great conversation. Joshua, thank you so much for being our guest. We wish you all the best in med school and hope that you will stay in touch. Oh, I definitely will. Thank you very much. Thanks, Joshua. Have a good one. Yeah. Take care, Zach. Bye, Sally. All right, well, it's almost time to wrap up this episode of Vernacular. But before we do that, Sally, let's check the inbox. All right. Oh, we have an email this week. Yes. Thank you. I guess everyone heard our our plea for emails from last week. Or our moms did. <laughs> well, this is actually not from our mom. This is from Brian. And Brian says, Dear Zach and Sally, I've been wondering, can God make a rock so big that he even he can't lift it? Oh, oh great question, Brian. <laughs> wow, so deep and philosophical. Hmm. We will ponder that. We will. Maybe we'll have an answer for you in episode nine. <laughs> Come back then. No one emails us again. <laughs> Maybe that can be our tip of the week. The answer to the question. <laughs> well, 
email us if you haven't yet, Zach and Sally at vernacularpodcast.com. And follow us on Twitter at vernacularpod. <laughs> and on Facebook, facebook.com slash vernacularpodcast. And check out our website and fill out our questionnaire if you would like to be on another episode of Vernacular. Vernacularpodcast.com. And on the homepage there, you'll see a questionnaire link. If you'd like to be on our show, please head there and fill it out. It's a lot of fun to fill out, and it doesn't take much time. But as soon as you fill that out, it sends it off to us, and we'll take a look. And then we'll get in touch with you to see if we can set up an interview. And check out our blog to see all the show notes from today's show. On top of that, if you are listening on your computer, we now have another way for people to listen on Stitcher. And Stitcher has apps for Android and iPhone slash iPad, the iOS system. So check out our website for links to our Stitcher page. Of course, if you're already on an iPhone or an iPad, you can listen through the native iTunes podcast app. But head to our website for that stuff as well. And if you've been feeling that you just love vernacular, then why don't you go over to your iTunes page and give us a rating or even leave us a review. Ratings and reviews help us a lot. So please do that on our iTunes podcast page or on our Stitcher page. We have reviews and ratings there as well. Well, that about wraps it up for us here at Vernacular for this episode. Our closing music today is from Jordan Short and his band. For more on Jordan, check out episode five where we talk to him and his wife, Catherine. All right, for Vernacular, I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. Have a great week. When I'm by your side